Aro, 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 Aro. You know I can fly, I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom cause who? Me, no one can stop this, liberation, no one can stop this, liberation You know I can fly, I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom cause who? Me, no one can stop this, liberation no one can stop this liberation. Who can I show me? Melonga Pichinson, Jay on your tani, Bimitola Jason, Aro Tendicola, Aro Tendipala, Bimisayanila, Jau Masutanson, Gandetonda Mambo, Jau Totum Jason, Aro Tendicola, Aro Tendipala, Duke Kangatesi, Marty Tabra Susan, Miki Tisho Gamo, Dutenta Jason, Aro Tendicola, Aro Tendipala, Uta Chichinsa. Kodon potalata, Joe Lara Yoto, Mitsutemo Tagi, Aro Tendicola, Aro Tendipala, Katam Gompacheta, Mitum Samlotonta, Coripunda number, Toko Tomo number, Nala Sero Nata, Yachi Shiro Nata, Chachi Kyoro Nata, Tiki Sumro Nata. You know I can fly, I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom cause who? Me. No one can stop this liberation. No one can stop this liberation. You know I can fly, I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom cause who? Me. No one can stop this liberation. No one can stop this liberation. You know I can fly, I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom cause who? Me. No one can stop this liberation. No one can stop this liberation. You know I can fly, I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom cause who? Me. No one can stop this liberation. No one can stop this liberation.
right. Welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, opening up with some sounds of Namgyal Yeshi, a um, young Tibetan rapper, uh, not as young as he was 10 years ago when the Tibetan uprising was happening, 2008. Uh, but I heard him performing last night at a venue out in Astoria, Queens, where students for a free Tibet were holding a uh, 10-year commemoration of the 2008 Tibetan uprising at a, um, at a local venue out there, actually a um, auditorium of a Greek community center, big uh, Greek community out in Astoria, Queens, as New Yorkers know, and now a growing Tibetan community out there as well. So uh, I played some of Namgyal's music um, on WBAI, where I was then producing radio, back in 2008 when the uprising broke out. In fact, that very song entitled Liberation. And uh, then I heard him perform it again last night out in Astoria exactly 10 years later. So uh, we're playing it again. And I'm glad that um, somebody was keeping alive the memory of the Tibetan uprising of 2008. Big ups to students for Free Tibet for... um, organizing that commemoration for uh, people who don't recall the 2008 uprising in Tibet began in Lhasa, the capital of Tibet in March of that year and continued for weeks and spread across the Tibetan plateau. It was put down at a cost of some 20 lives by official Chinese figures But Tibetan rights groups and the um, Tibetan government in exile based in Dharmasala, India, based on accounts from their contacts on the ground in Tibet, claim that um, hundreds were disappeared in the wave of repression that followed the protest with some 200 presumed killed, never reappeared and presumed dead. And, of course, amid all of this, the uh, Beijing Olympics were held that summer. And students for a free Tibet and allied groups held protests around the world to highlight the repression, including within China itself during the Games. Uh, Activists actually traveled to Beijing and um, in the midst of all the media hoopla around the Summer Olympics, unfurled banners calling for a free Tibet and, of course, got themselves arrested and promptly deported. And at the venue out in Astoria last night, last night being Saturday, August 4th, uh, there were um, photos all um, festooned all across the walls of the uh, of the ballroom where the event was held, showing um, activists unfurling banners in Beijing at the Great Wall of China on Mount Everest in Tibetan territory, as well as um, stateside sites such as the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. The guest of honor at the commemoration was Dundup Wangchen, a uh, producer of a documentary film that came out that same year, 2008, entitled Leaving Fear Behind, in which uh, he and his production crew, they traveled across the Tibetan plateau and they spoke to something like 100 ordinary Tibetans about their feelings about China hosting the Summer Olympics that year. And um, at the uh, commemoration where he was honored last night, 
Wang Chen said that, uh, you know, he explained to the people that he interviewed the, um, the risks which speaking on camera entailed to their lives and to their freedom, but that over 100 were willing to speak to him anyway, far more than he could actually use in the film. And uh, the footage was um, smuggled out of Tibet, and um, the film was shown at festivals overseas. Wang Chen, not surprisingly, was subsequently arrested and convicted of subversion, quote-unquote, wound up spending six years in prison. And at the commemoration last night, he described the extremely harsh conditions in the, uh, in the prison where he served six years for making a film. He said that, uh, you know, we go in healthy, but we come out barely able to walk. Um, he also described the um, official discrimination against Tibetan prisoners where they are denied phone calls. And on the rare um, family visits which were permitted, they were only allowed to speak Chinese, not their native tongue. And when uh, Wang Chen was among several Tibetan inmates who signed a letter of protest about these discriminatory practices, he was uh, placed in solitary confinement for 80 days. Finally, even after his release in 2014, uh, Wang Chen said that he remained under close surveillance and had to report his every move to the authorities. So finally, in 2017, he escaped from Tibet and was granted asylum in the United States. He today resides in San Francisco with his wife, Lamo Tso, who um, waged a campaign for, had waged a campaign for his release during the period that he was imprisoned and also appeared with him at the commemoration last night. And Wang Chen concluded by discussing the uh, grim situation in Tibet a decade after the uprising with the language eroding due to its de-emphasis in the education system, young Tibetans increasingly can only speak Chinese. Traditional Tibetan nomads are being forcibly resettled in reservations completely controlled by the Chinese government. And the uh, demographic tilt away from Tibetans in their own homeland continues to advance as Han Chinese are offered incentives such as subsidies for housing and businesses if they will resettle within Tibet. Uh, the award which was given to Wang Chen at the ceremony was dubbed Lakar, which is the Tibetan word for Wednesday, which has taken on a special significance in recent years as a form of nonviolent resistance. Tibetans in Tibet are making an effort every Wednesday to speak their native tongue, to patronize Tibetan businesses, and to um, generally exercise their culture. And uh, organizers at the uh, commemoration noted that um, with China set to host the 2022 Winter Olympics, there will be a renewed opportunities to bring the question of Tibet to the global stage. Another case that was touched upon at the commemoration last night, a very similar case, is that of Tashi Wangchuk, who is a... Um, crusader for the preservation of the Tibetan language, who had been protesting to the official authorities in China the de-emphasis of the Tibetan language in the school curriculum within Tibet. And after he actually spoke about this to a journalist from the New York Times, he was similarly charged with inciting separatism and just earlier this year was sentenced to five years in prison.
And unfortunately, there are several such cases, not only concerning the Tibetans, but um, several of the um, ethnic minority peoples or indigenous peoples in the territory controlled by the People's Republic of China under the, um, uh, the crackdown and the you know, closing political space under um, the consolidating dictatorship of um, Xi Jinping, as we've uh, discussed on this podcast before, uh, under Xi Jinping, sort of a, a personal autocracy seems to be reconsolidating for the first time since the, uh, the reign of um, Deng Xiaoping 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now, where you know, in, the interim, in the intervening years, you would sort of had a, you know, a one-party state, but it was more of a dictatorship by the party and the bureaucracy rather than a personalistic dictatorship and a certain amount of... Um, of political space seem to be opening, and now that is rapidly closing as once again a sort of a personal autocracy is um, consolidating around um, Xi Jinping. Another case, which um, I've written about on my website, countervortex.org, is um, that of a ethnic Mongol historian, Lamjab Borjagin, who uh, has written several books about the history of the Mongolian people, and is a uh, quite a respected scholar, but uh, his most recent book he could not get published by any official publishing house, any official editorial house in um, in the People's Republic of China, because it concerned a very controversial issue, which was the uh, persecution of the Mongol people during the Cultural Revolution in China of the 1960s, in which, um, according to uh, Lam Job's research, something like 30 thousand people were killed in um, a wave of ethnic persecution um, in uh, what is officially known as Inner Mongolia from the Chinese point of view, uh, as opposed to Outer Mongolia, which is further out from the Chinese point of view, looking at it from a, a political geography perspective, Outer Mongolia being the independent nation of Mongolia, Inner Mongolia being those areas closer to um, the Chinese heartland, which are actually controlled by the People's Republic of China, the Mongols, I should point out, call Inner Mongolia Southern Mongolia, looking at it from, uh, you know, uh, a a point of view centered on that of the Mongol people rather than the Chinese people. So, uh, you know, for them, uh, Outer Mongolia or the independent nation of Mongolia is Northern Mongolia. And what the Chinese call Inner Mongolia, they call Southern Mongolia. So uh, he wrote a book entitled simply China's Cultural Revolution, uh, although really what it concerned was um, how China's Cultural Revolution played out in Inner Mongolia, where um, ironically, you know, um, in the name of the you know, ultra-left ideology of Mao Zedong, there was apparently a very severe ethnic persecution going on of the uh, of the Mongol people, and you know, I mean, it seems extremely uh, ironic if you actually look at it with any degree of distance. But apparently, uh, you know, Han Chinese chauvinism was being linked to a um, uh, ostensibly to a program of you know ultra leftism, and apparently, something like uh, thirty thousand ethnic Mongol people uh, lost their lives during this wave of persecution. Uh, this is history, which is uh, extremely, uh, you know, it's very, it's in very little scholarship on this, certainly in the outside world. Uh, I'm not sure that um, Lam Job's book has been translated into English. I would love to read it, but it was translated into um, uh, 
he wrote it, I guess, uh, in the Mongol language. So I'm not even sure if it's been translated into into Mandarin, for that matter. But in any event, he could not get a publisher for it, so he took the risk of having it um, self-published through a sort of an underground press, and it was um, being distributed um, within Inner Mongolia through a sort of a Samizdat system, as it used to be called in the old Soviet Union, uh, you know, unofficially published, um, and just uh, sort of distributed through informal networks. And then, eventually, it got across the border into the independent country of Mongolia, or northern Mongolia, if you will, uh, where, where there it actually was published by, um, in the Mongolian language by a, uh, an official publishing house. And after this happened, Lamjab was arrested and similarly has been charged with um, sabotaging national unity and may also be looking at a lengthy prison term for writing a book for doing historical research and trying to uh, bring to the public eye what the Mongol people experienced during the uh, during China's Cultural Revolution of the 1960s. But the most grim situation is what is uh, happening to the the Uyghur people out in far western China, immediately to the north of Tibet, the area uh, officially known in Chinese official nomenclature as Xinjiang. But the Uyghur people call it Uyghurstan or East Turkestan. The uh, again, looking at it from a, you know these different names are um, kind of exemplify uh, you know, different um, sense of a political geography. Looking at you know, sort of a political geography point of view here, um, Xinjiang, actually, which is you know the official name and you know in, in the official bureaucratic Chinese nomenclature for the for the province. The Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. But Xinjiang actually means Western Territory in Mandarin. So obviously that's a sort of a Sino-centric name. You know, it's the area far to the West, which um, is, you know, the, the further, furthermost territory which has been colonized by the Chinese state. Whereas the Uyghur people either call it Uyghurstan, the land of the Uyghurs, the Uyghurs being the ethnic Turkic and um, Muslim people who um, have traditionally inhabited that region, or they call it East Turkestan, viewing themselves as a part of the greater Turkestan region of Central Asia, which also, of course, incorporates Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, etc. So um, looking... Uh, seeing their own territory as the easternmost area of the greater Turkic sphere of Central Asia rather than the westernmost territory of China, right? So uh, these different names exemplify different ways of, um, uh, of, of uh, viewing the territory's identity. And uh, the situation in East Turkestan or Uyghurstan or Xinjiang, or whatever you want to call it, depending on your point of view, is extremely grim indeed. Apparently, the um, the Chinese authorities are um, really afraid of um, political Islam or jihadism taking root in the region. And there's been a lot of fear in recent years about the emergence of a group called Etim, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement. It's uncertain if it even really exists. This is sort of the uh, the name which has just been designated by the Chinese authorities for um, 
seemingly a uh, leaderless and decentralized network of um, radical cells within East Turkestan, which have carried out a few attacks over the past years. And in response to this, the Chinese authorities are really instating a uh, extremely, I mean, just frighteningly draconian police state out there in, um, in Xinjiang. And, you know, this is an extremely remote part of the world. You know, this is the westernmost part of China, very, very sparsely populated, very difficult for um, human rights organizations or the media to reach this area. Uh, one of the most remote places on the planet, far out there in the steppes of Central Asia. And uh, there's very little visibility. So the Chinese state is putting in place, and once again, this extremely draconian system. First of all, most ominously, over the past several months, at least hundreds of thousands, by some estimates, possibly as many as a million, have been forcibly detained in what are being called political education camps. Now, this, again, is something which is, you know, redolent of the, um, of the Mao era, redolent of um, the Cultural Revolution and all that. And the Chinese system seemed to have been, over the past couple of generations, moving away from that kind of thing. And uh, now, under Xi Jinping, it's back again. Although, <laughs> I will hasten to point out that, uh, whereas under Mao, this kind of thing had been done in the name of, a, um, of an ultra-left ideology... Today, it's being done, uh, you know, under a political order, which is aggressively and savagely capitalist. So um, it's kind of uh, got the the outward forms of Maoist totalitarianism. But uh, the political economy is 100 percent savage capitalist. So um, rather a political irony there. Um, And these people are being detained, apparently, without any kind of a legal process, without any kind of, you know, semblance of, um, of, of, of legality or due process. And like I say, the, the numbers seem to be at least hundreds of thousands just over the past months, possibly as many as a million Uyghurs have been detained. And even in, uh, you know, uh, their own villages where they're ostensibly free, uh, this kind of a extreme surveillance state is being put in place where... The authorities are installing facial recognition technology in uh, villages across uh, Xinjiang to enforce restrictions on residents' movements. Uh, People are being um, just people who have merely fallen under some kind of suspicion or even in some areas, it seems the populace generally are um, being fitted with uh, tracking devices, which they must wear at all time. The authorities have been um, universally collecting DNA samples, fingerprints, iris scans, and blood types of all residents in the region, or at least all adults between the ages of 12 and 65, for uh, the purpose of uh, you know being able to track the movements of the of the, of the populace in real time. And um, here's where you know things have got to be seen in a in a greater context, right? I think. That, uh, you know, one of the reasons that the Chinese authorities are taking such a heavy hand with the Uyghurs and the Mongols and the Tibetans and other minority peoples is that they are afraid of these minority peoples setting an example 
by rebelling against the state, an example that could be emulated by the broad Han Chinese masses. And over the past several years in the People's Republic of China, even in the the ethnic Han heartland of China, um, again, under this program of savage capitalism, corrupt authorities have been illegally or, you know, just barely under cover of law, seizing the uh, lands of the peasants to put up factories and you know, golf courses and, and, and McMansions of the new of the nouveau riche elite and so on. You know, real estate developments and there has been a whole wave of um, a protest about this, just over you know peasants trying to hold on to their lands, and uh, there's been you know localized uprisings in villages really across China over the past several years where, uh, you know, they've um, sometimes even actually chased out the authorities and, you know, taken matters into their own hands to try to, um, to take control of their lands. And in some cases, it's been pretty harsh repression. And there's been a whole wave of this kind of thing. But the thing is that there isn't enough, you know, um, political space in China for an actual coordinated movement to emerge. So it's all very localized. You know, this is all happening merely at the village level. There isn't, uh, you know, there, has, there hasn't really been the uh, enough political space for any kind of, you know, national coordination to emerge. And, you know, it's unclear if even these localized insurrections and protest movements, which have been going on across China, um, particularly across the, uh, the heavily industrialized southern coastal areas, uh, it's uncertain if these local insurrections are even aware of each other. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, these cases get more um, uh, media coverage in the outside world than they actually do within China itself. But um, clearly, this is, you know, something that the government is very, very much afraid of. And again, you know, this gets back to, you know, the extreme irony of, um, uh, you know, these totalitarian methods, which were sort of pioneered in the Maoist era, now being imposed under the savage capitalist state of Xi Jinping. Obviously, one of the things that they're really afraid of is the potential for a, um, you know, a mass uprising led by the Han peasantry, which is now being expropriated of its lands, which is, of course, exactly the same thing that, uh, you know, brought Mao Zedong to power back in the 1940s. And, you know, the whole um, experience from uh, uh, then from 1927, when the uh, the Chinese Revolution really began, to 1949, when it took power, was um, a, uh, a massive upsurge from below of the peasantry, ultimately, you know, led by Mao and the Chinese Communist Party, and this is itself repeating the uh, you know a century before that with the the Taiping Revolution uh, in China, which nearly brought down the uh, the imperial state. In the um, in the mid 19th century, this is some you know the uh, the, the ruling elites in China are um, very very much aware of this history and the threat of this history repeating itself. And I think that you know um, they're really afraid of the broad Han masses making common cause with the Tibetans and the Uyghurs and the Mongols and so on uh, against the um, the ruling elites of China. And similarly, I believe that the, uh, the ruling Chinese elites are sort of using Xinjiang as a, and the Uyghurs as a laboratory and a test population for um, totalitarian methods, which will eventually be 
applied to the general population. And uh, this is where we have to look at the greater global context, because you can be sure that, uh, you know, the folks in the Homeland Security Department here in the United States are looking very, very closely at what the Chinese authorities are doing in Xinjiang. And as much as the U.S. State Department may be, uh, you know, wagging its finger at Beijing and saying, bad, don't do that. (laughs) And if you want to get good information on what's happening in uh, Xinjiang, there is um, no news service on the planet which covers it as aggressively as um, Radio Free Asia, which is um, essentially the arm of um, the media arm of the United States State Department. But as much as the, um, the State Department may be, you know, sort of condescendingly wagging its finger at China and saying, uh, you know, oh, isn't it terrible how you're oppressing the Uyghurs? You can be sure that the uh, people in um, Homeland Security and, and the FBI and so on are looking at these methods and saying, oh, isn't that interesting? We better catch up on these methods. We better catch up on this technology and these, these methods of social control because uh, we wouldn't want China to get ahead of us in the... Um, sort of, you know, the social control arms race, as it were. And they, they, are going, they are going to be studying the potentialities for applying such methods here. I mean, you can be certain of it. I mean, we, all of the revelations we've had in recent years about the, uh, the National Security Agency, you know, um, following all of our moves online, uh, you can be sure that uh, they're also making preparations to be following all of our moves. Of course, with, you know, surveillance cameras everywhere everybody walking around with um with digital devices which know your whereabouts at all time and know everything that you're saying and and writing and every website that you're looking at in real time all the time (laughs) and also capturing every uh, move that you make on camera with your own little handheld device i mean it's all falling into place so perfectly you have to be blind not to see it. And it's all sold to us in the name of convenience and, uh, and making our lives easier, and it's so much fun. But, uh, you know, the, what's falling into place is, you know, the, um, the uh, you know, infrastructure and, and the methodology um, for, uh, you know, a complete totalitarianism. And, uh, you know, the, the doors are closing for democracy all over the planet right now. Right. So um, obviously they're closing faster in China than they are here in the United States because the door was never as wide open in China as here in the United States. And, you know, there isn't a democratic tradition and a separation of powers and independent judiciary and so on in China the way there is in the United States. But the doors are closing here, too. And certainly, uh, you know, Donald Trump is aspiring to consolidate a personal autocracy, a personalistic dictatorship, uh, such as uh, Xi Jinping is now putting into place in China. So, um, you know, so many leftists in the West are reluctant to criticize or even to look critically at anything that China is doing because they think that any criticism of China is, you know, this sort of Cold War condescension and self-congratulation about, you know, how free and democratic we are here in the West now, I don't view it that way, obviously. I see a new totalitarianism consolidating all over the world under the sinister troika of Putin, Trump, and Xi. 
and isolated out there in remote Xinjiang, the Uyghurs are vulnerable and are, again, serving as a test population, not only for methods of social control that the Chinese state would impose throughout China, but ultimately that Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and all of their lesser emulators, such as, you know, Bashar Assad and uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Viktor Orban and Rodrigo Duterte and all of the, uh, you know, emerging despots all over the world are going to attempt to put in place on their own populaces as well. So um, failing to look critically or to protest what China is doing in Xinjiang and in Tibet and in Inner Mongolia is um, not only a betrayal of human solidarity, but it's also ultimately making a noose for our own necks. And uh, the last thing I'll say before I wrap it up here is that um, even despite this extremely grim picture that I painted here and political space rapidly closing throughout the People's Republic of China, uh, resistance does continue. Just uh, last month, there was a, um, again, a sort of a local uprising at the Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture of Yushul in Qinghai Province. This is a, um, a prefecture of um, Qinghai Province, which uh, borders Tibet uh, and where um, the, uh, the, the, the populace is, for the most part, ethnic Tibetan, um, over a, a mining project where, and again, you know, it's pointing once again to the irony, even as this, you know, really draconian totalitarian police state is being put in place under um, under Xi Jinping. At the same time, it's happening, you know, in this atmosphere of extreme lawlessness for, uh, you know, the, the new capitalist robber barons who are um, emerging in China, who are, you know, just being given a free hand to um, establish factories and mines and um, other, you know, extractive projects without any government oversight whatsoever. I mean, just operating completely outside of any kind of government regulation or oversight through, um, you know, networks of corruption. And apparently uh, there were some, uh, you know, local mining interests who had established, you know, an illegal mine project in uh, usual Tibetan autonomous prefecture, you know, apparently just, you know, usurping lands which had been used by... Um, by Tibetan herders and agriculturalists, and they occupied the site. And uh, finally, they um, mixed it up with the security forces on July 7th, and uh, police used tear gas and baton charges to disperse the protesters, and um, several were detained. Now, this is an obvious parallel to the situations which I have uh, you know, written about and reported about in the Andes, um, in Peru, in Bolivia, in Colombia, in Ecuador, particularly the situation at the Conga mine project in Cajamarca in the north of Peru, where Newmont Mining of Colorado, U.S.-based corporation, has been um, trying to expand its giant open pit gold mine for the past several years um, on lands which the local Quechua peasants say have been illegally usurped in many cases and uh, which they say are, you know, threatening the uh, waters which they depend upon for uh, both um, fishery and for agriculture. And they've been actually occupying 
the mine site, the area where uh, where where Newmont Mining wants to expand the Yanacocha gold mine into the area called Kanga, and they've actually succeeded in uh, you know halting the expansion of the mine. There's been a lot of repression. Several people have been killed over the course of this struggle. So um, this is an obvious parallel to what just happened in usual Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture in Qinghai. You know, I've written about similar situations in, um, out on the, uh, the Altiplano of Bolivia, Quechua and Aymara peasants standing up to, uh, you know, grabs by, uh, you know, land grabs by, by mineral companies, whether they be U.S. mineral companies, in some cases Japanese, and in some cases Chinese. There have actually been um, similar situations in Peru in recent years where, um, in fact, in areas uh, quite close to Cajamarca in the Lambayeque province, there's a, uh, a big project where uh, a Chinese mineral company is uh, similarly attempting to um, uh, you know, start a mega mine project on lands which the traditional peasantry claim as their own traditional territories and um, have, been, uh, have been resisting, and there's been, you know, uh, conflict with the security forces over this. So, you know, it's all one struggle. And, you know, obviously, clear parallels as well to the uh, whole struggle over the Dakota Access Pipeline project out in um, North Dakota here in the United States. So it's all one struggle. We are talking about the rights of peasants and indigenous peoples to control their own land. We're talking about preserving what precious little of the naturaleza, of the uh, you know unspoiled lands, are left on this planet to preserve the functioning of the global biosphere, which is clearly teetering right at the brink of devastating collapse right now. And it's really important that we um, don't get caught up in the divide-and-conquer game, which is the essence of the state system. And it really pains me when, uh, you know, Evo Morales, the left populist president of Bolivia, who came to power, you know, sort of on the, was, was, was on the wave of, um, of, of peasant and indigenous protest um, against the corrupt elites in, um, in Bolivia over the past generation, when I hear him, uh, you know, refer to China as an ideological ally and actually, you know, diss the Tibetans as pawns of U.S. imperialism or whatever, it really pains me because, uh, you know, the real challenge on the planet, the most critical challenge on the planet right now is to build grassroots to grassroots solidarity and not to get caught up in the, um, you know, the global divide-and-conquer game, which is the essence of the state system. Because if we allow ourselves to be manipulated that way, basically, it's all over. Especially now that, uh, you know, I, Trump and Putin, at the very least, are cooperating in instating what I call a fascist world order. And I will defend, some people would accuse me of hyperbole, I will defend my use of that word, Um I think that, you know, Xi Jinping is uh, not quite sure whether he's been invited to the party, whether he's been invited to the Trump-Putin party. And he's, um, you know, a little bit wary about being left out in the cold and being, uh, you know, the two other world powers sort of, you know, ganging up on him, despite the fact that he's quite fascistic enough to be a member of uh, the fascist world order. Uh, but in any event... You know, the, the world is essentially dominated by these three despots now, Trump, 
Putin and Xi. And they're carving things up amongst themselves. And if we allow ourselves to be, uh, you know, for the grassroots to be pitted against the grassroots, then, uh, you know, it's all over. We can't allow that to happen. And just like, you know, Radio Free Asia, which is, you know, the media arm of the State Department, and Radio Free Europe, the media arm of the State Department, will do aggressive coverage about the... um, about the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and the, and the Crimean Tartars and, uh, and so on. Uh, similarly, RT, the, um, the media arm of the Kremlin, did really aggressive coverage about the Dakota Access protesters. So, you know, the, the dystopian element of the situation is that um, the Tibetans and the Uyghurs and the Crimean Tartars are going to um, look to the United States of America as their friend and their defender. Similarly, the way, you know, some of the Dakota Access protesters uh, and, and, you know, left opposition forces here in the United States saw all of the favorable coverage that they were getting from RT, from Russia Today, and were looking to Putin as their friend and their defender, as, you know, he's you know, imposing a draconian police state in Russia and uh, usurping the lands of indigenous people such as the Evenks out in Niger- out in um, out in Siberia for um, uh, you know oil development projects and so on and usurping the um, uh, traditional uh, territorial autonomy of the Crimean Tartars and the Crimean Peninsula which he is illegally annexed and meanwhile as you know these oppressed and persecuted peoples all look to the uh, the leaders of the the rival superpower as their friend and protector, Trump and Putin and Xi are going to happily go about imposing their fascist world order on all of us and have a good laugh at our expense. So, you know, this is the big challenge on the planet right now to build grassroots to grassroots solidarity across international boundaries in repudiation of what's increasingly a single integrated fascist world order dominated by Trump, Putin, and Xi. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Everything I've been talking about is online at my website, countervortex.org. Big ups to um, Students for a Free Tibet for the excellent event which they organized last night out in Astoria, Queens, last night being August 4th, commemoration of the 2008 Tibetan Uprising. Big ups once again. We're going to go out uh, with Liberation by Namgyal Yeshi, Tibetan rapper, now living here in New York City. Uh, And uh, please weigh in. Let us know what you think. Be in touch. Leave a comment. Even if you think we're full of beans, please leave a comment. If you like what you heard, share it. Spread the word. Join the resistance. Join the counter vortex. Aro, 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 aro. Aro, 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 aro. 
Adam Gompa Shetan, Mikum Samlo Tonta, Gorikunda Namba, Choko Tromo Namba, Nala Sero Nata, Yachi Shiro Nata, Chachi Kyoro Nata, Tiki Suro Nata. You know I can fly, I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom coast. Who? Me. No one can stop this liberation. No one can stop this liberation. You know I can fly, I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom coast. Who? Me. No one can stop this liberation. No one can stop this liberation. Who can antichoni? Milonga kuchinso. Jai wonjutani. Bimi dula jason. Aro tende kola. Aro tende pala. Bimi sayanila. Jai marsutanso. Kande tonda mango. Jai tochom jason. Aro tende kola. Aro tende pala. Duke kangatese. Maki tabra suson. Miki chicho jamo. Duke tonda jason. Aro tende kola. Aro tende pala, uta chuti shinsa, kodon pota lata, chuo laga yuto, mitu temo tagi. Aro tende kola, aro tende pala. Katum gomba sheta, mitum samlo tonta, korikunda namba, choko tromo namba, ngala siro nata, yachi siro nata, chachi kyoro nata, tiki suro nata. You know I can fly, I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom coast. Who me? No one can stop this liberation. No one can stop this liberation. You know I can fly. I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom coast. Who me? No one can stop this liberation. No one can stop this liberation. Pinji chuzi tia, chapsi chumba chaso, bimi tonda mambo, tuni tata mindo, aro tindi kola, aro tindi pala, pao tuti mudo, kulu mesi kani, bula ranti gubi. Boko shine yuto, aro tindi kola, aro tindi pala Jambo tindi jatu, matu uti zene Bula ranti gubi, boko shine yuto Aro tindi gala, aro tindi chela Nima dini songti, tipa dini songti Bula ranti nembi, tamja tempo shota Aro tindi chona, aro tindi gala, aro tindi chela Katum gompa shetan, mitum samlo tonta, korikunda namba, choko tromo namba, ngala siro nata, yachi shiro nata, chachi kyoro nata, tiki suro nata. You know I can fly, I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom coast. Who me? No one can stop this liberation. No one can stop this liberation. You know I can fly, I flew from the fresh mountain to the freedom coast. Who me? No one can stop this liberation. No one can stop this liberation. 